Welcome to another installment of the IAS podcast series. I'm your host, Adam Armstrong, Director of the Institute for the Advancement of Senior Care, or IASC. On today's show, we have an especially unique, fascinating, and timely discussion uh, with a healthcare actuary who takes us into the world of Medicare fraud. Very interesting conversation. Healthcare fraud and long-term care has long been a rampant issue, and for many policymakers in Washington is a critical touch point as laws and policy continue to focus on driving out waste in the healthcare field as a whole, not just long-term care. Uh, joining us today with, uh, in our, and our guest on the show is Michael Frank. Uh, he's the founder and, and president of Aquarius Capital. Uh, he is an, a health accident life actuary with approximately 30 years of experience, including executive management experience with insurance, reinsurance, employee benefits, consulting, and, man- and managed care entities. He provides financial and management consulting to various organizations, including insurance companies, investment bankers, reinsurers, HMOs, managed care organizations, hospitals, disease management. It runs the gamut. Uh, he's uh, also consulted for private equity funds and Fortune 500 companies and other organiza- organizations servicing the insurance and re- reinsurance industry in the U.S. and internationally. Uh, he's also a, uh, a professor at Columbia University. Uh, as well, so he's on staff there. Uh, has a great perspective uh, on insurance and on, on on fraud and what insurance fraud actually looks like. So the conversation takes a variety of twists and turns, covering a variety of different subjects uh, across long-term care and insurance in general. Uh, we hope you enjoy it. Really excited to have him here. Welcome to the podcast, Michael. Um, so, so today we've got an exciting topic. Uh, one of the reasons why we got Michael on the line here, we're talking about Medicare fraud uh, and, and healthcare fraud in general. And it seems like every other day there's, there's a new instance of, of a CEO, a physician, an executive from a rehabilitation center or a surgical center or a long-term care center who's been indicted or charged with committing Medicare fraud. Uh, according to a study piloted by CMS only a few years ago, Medicare and Medicaid fraud uh, was basically uh, announced as a cottage industry for fraudsters, um, adding up to an estimated $98 billion, or roughly 10% of the annual Medicare and Medicaid spending budget at the time. This was back in 2013, uh, and Michael can attest to this. You know, Fraud has only grown over that period of time and become more and more of a pronounced issue uh, especially in long-term care. So for Michael, just to start our conversation for the uninitiated, maybe you could describe to the audience exactly what we mean by Medicare fraud and what that looks like in the context of long-term care. Oh, thank you. That's a very good question. Well, when we think about Medicare fraud, you know, the interesting thing about fraud in the Medicare space, most Medicare members will be covered by the government through Medicare, and then many of them will purchase a Medicare supplement plan. So typically in the healthcare space for seniors, the amount of -of out-of-pocket expense to those seniors is minimal. So as a result of that, you lose what I would call the checks and balances, Mm -hmm. where if you had a high deductible plan and you go to a doctor and you get a bill, um, if the bill looks funny, you know, since you're paying a significant portion of it, you may question it, but when you're in the Medicare space, If you're getting large bills, those large bills are being picked up by the insurance company or by Medicare itself, whether it's from your Medicare supplement, Medigap, or through, you know, Medicare itself. So as a result of that, there's really no checks and balances. So where Medicare fraud becomes really, you know, prevalent is 
in the billing of more intense services, so if you go to a doctor, uh, just make up a scenario and you have a four-minute visit, that visit could be billed as a 10 or 15-minute visit, and the covered member really doesn't care because Medicare and its insurance company are picking up the cost. So this is a situation where a provider is upcoding for services. Right. Um, it goes beyond just the upcoding when you start to see, you know, because individuals are not really understanding the EOB's explanation of benefits that they get from Medicare and then the similar ones that they get from their own insurance companies, what you'll find is there'll be some providers out there that will bill for services that have not occurred, mm-hmm. in addition to what we refer to as upcoding to more intensive services. And in some cases, you might actually see providers billing for services in a very frequent, you know, let's use rehabilitation or physical therapy. A senior has a hip replacement or a knee replacement and is going to physical therapy yep. and the individual might get billed, you know, well, let me rephrase it, the insurance company is getting billed and Medicare is getting billed for three visits a week, but the member may not actually be attending those visits. Right. So there's what I would call very little checks and balances. And I think that's a great description, you know, to kind of set the table for our discussion here. Uh, How prevalent is fraud, Michael, in in the long-term care space? You know, what are the statistics in the field telling us now? You know, I shared some from 2013, but what are you seeing in the field right now? Well, well, the tricky part with fraud is really kind of detecting, you know, the different levels of fraud. And, you know, when we talk about the number of people that are uninsured in this country, the stats kind of, you know, some people might say it's, 20 million, some people might say it's 50 million, others might say it's 100 million. It's very hard to get your finger around fraud because fraud wears a lot of different hats and there's a lot of different scenarios. Upcoding happens every day. And I would say if you as a commercial member, since you're clearly you're you're too young to be a a senior citizen of (laughs) Medicare, but you as a commercial member, if you look at your explanation of benefits and try to figure out those five-digit codes, that assign something on there, chances are there's, there's a certain level of upcoding. And that probably happens as much as one to two times, one out of every two times, depending on the providers you're going to. So that's one level of, of what I would call billing fraud. Yeah. Another level of billing fraud is you go to a doctor's office and they get reimbursed on a Medicare reimbursement schedule, referred to as an RBRVS fee schedule, uh, relative-based resource value scale. This RBRVS fee schedule has what I would call an area factor to it. Mm-hmm. So if you live in a major city, it's going to be a lot more expensive. Like I live in, outside of Manhattan. So someone in Manhattan versus somebody in Spokane, Washington, the Manhattan rate is going to be close to double. But what you're going to find is a lot of times, you know, doctor's offices will set up billing companies in urban locations. Right. With the hope that when they submit the bills in, even if you had, you know, care in a suburban area, it's being out, billed out of a different location. And sometimes that the, the insurance companies will actually reimburse off of the higher schedule. So that's what I would call another level of fraud. In the senior space, something that's really becoming more and more prevalent is the number of knee replacements, the number of hip replacements, the number of shoulder replacements. Right. 
many of the larger insurance companies have gone out, you know, and they, they, they negotiate contracts with the different providers, but they really focus on what's the cost of the implant, but not, but not focus on the number of units. So uh, I'm gonna use my own example, even though I'm not on Medicare either. <laughs> I had a hip replacement surgery, and in that hip replacement surgery, I had one implantable device, but the insurance company was billed by the hospital for 11 implantable devices. And the insurance company paid it, and me as a covered member, the hospital's expecting me to pay my share of 11, you know, surgeries. So it becomes a very complex area because I have a higher deductible plan, and, and unfortunately, or fortunately, because I work as an actuary in the industry, I'm knowledgeable enough to identify where something just doesn't look right. But, but these problems are very prevalent, and many of the hospitals will retain billing companies that are very sophisticated, so they know what the large insurance companies and the mid-sized insurance companies and even the smaller insurance companies, what they audit, what they review. So if they know that you know, XYZ Health Plan will look at all claims above $1,000, mm -hmm. they'll make sure to structure their bill codes to fall in around 900. If, if they know that certain hospitals are not, well, certain insurance companies are not focused on, you know, the number of units billed, they're only focused on the unit price, then the way they kind of get around it is they just bill for multiple units. Or in my case, uh, billing for 11 units when only one unit was dispensed. Right, right. We'll get right back to our discussion with Michael Frank after this word from our supporting sponsor, the iAdvance Senior Care Educational Webinar Series. The Educational Webinar Series are complimentary monthly distance learning programs hosted by the IAS community to share practical recommendations and advice from top professionals, researchers, and experts from across the senior living community. These programs are free to access to the IASC subscriber community, hosted over lunch, and are available for continuing education credit, and provide valuable resources and perspective to help you grow and develop better care offerings and improve the quality of life at your center. Join us as we end the year in style with renowned long-term care policy insider and lobbyist Cynthia Morton, president of the NASL, or National Association for the Support of Long-Term Care. Register today to hear Morton provide a 2018 CMS policy preview to review the policies and regulations that are forthcoming and what you need to know to position your organization for success. Hear about how the House Energy and uh, Commerce Committee and Ways and Means Committee have, has agreed to language that will enact several changes in 2018, including repeal of the long-standing Part B outpatient therapy cap, that's very critical right now, in favor of a new medical review of claims. Uh, additionally, a new round of quality measures has been mandated by the Impact Act with aggressive timelines for data collection. So you're, you're definitely going to want to be a part of this program. Uh, it impacts a lot of different uh, business outlets and uh, impacts the way that you provide care. So uh, join us on Tuesday, December 19th at 1 p.m. Eastern, 12 p.m. Central. Again, that's Tuesday, December 19th at 1 p.m. Eastern, 12 p.m. Central. Uh, we'd be thrilled to host you. Uh, to register, visit iAdvanceSeniorCare.com and click the webinars link. Again, that's iAdvanceSeniorCare.com and click the webinars link. And now back to our conversation with Michael Frank. 
Um, you, you mentioned contracts. I, I want to touch on that real quick. You know, how are organizations contracting in the long-term care space, you know, specifically as it relates to Medicare, Medicaid, and commercial? Sure. And when we talk about long-term care, it, you know, it's kind of a, an interesting variable you know, because we think about long-term care and we think about the senior markets. There's, you know, they're establishing contracts with large home care providers, right. large skilled nursing facilities, rehabilitation centers. Uh, because you're dealing with the senior population, you're contracting with large hospitals. And, and what you'll find in the insurance world is, you know, there's what I call three types of providers. There's the out-of-network provider, which is, you know, pretty simple. They're out of network. You right. don't necessarily have a contract with them. But then there's the in-network provider, um, which I'm going to split into two categories, the direct contracted individual providers and then the large hospital systems and healthcare providers, which people refer to under Obamacare, some of them is accountable care organizations. Right. The accountable care organizations, many of them recognize that, you know, in order for you to kind of provide, you know, operate as an insurance company in a given market, you have to have a certain size network. And there has to be certain hospitals in the network. So like in Manhattan, you might need Columbia Presbyterian Hospital. You might need NYU Hospital. You might need Hospital for Special Surgery. There's certain facilities that are really critical to have in your network. And because this, these facilities and providers know this, they're able to have a little bit of leverage in the negotiation. So they tend to cut a much better deal with the insurance companies than just independent providers. So the average individual doctor is not going to have nearly the leverage that the bigger organizations have. So you tend to have two different kinds of contracts, but then at times you might have two different types of scrutiny. For, you know, like if I had my surgery at a small hospital instead of a very large teaching hospital, the insurance company might have been more aggressive in managing that claim. Right. As opposed to just paying it when it comes in. And, and one of the dynamics that you'll find in, in Medicare, but it's also in the commercial market and even the Medicaid market, these insurance companies are measured by quality as well as cost or quantity. And part of that quality measure is how fast they pay claims. So what you'll find is more and more organizations want to go to what I call an EDI model, uh, electronic data interchange. They want more claims, you know, going through their system that don't touch a human hand. So the moment you walked into the doctor's office, you start typing the, the doctor bills you, they, they punch out a bill on the computer, and then through the Internet, that bill gets into the insurance company's system, and then many times if there's not a need for an edit, those claims automatically generate a check. Right. Without touching a human hand, and that's referred to as EDI compliant. They want to have a higher percentage of their claims you know, pass through it out of human hands so that way they can be known as having a higher, very fast turnaround time. Sure. Sure. I, I, your point about ACOs is really well received, Michael. Um, I, I think that some of these providers, too, in long-term care, if I'm an executive, I presume becoming a preferred provider within that ACO or within that network is probably something that would be advantageous to me, especially as it relates to insurance and then insurance fraud. Am I right about that? Well, a a absolutely. Well, for one, the larger organizations have more sophisticated billing. You know, that just goes without saying. And part of that sophisticated billing is, you know, 
being able to push the envelope. You know, it's, it's not an administrator or a secretary mailing out your bills from your doctor's office. It's a very sophisticated billing company that's, that has technology and software in order to unbundle things. And when I say unbundle, to, to create more itemization of service charges so that way they can bill you for more. So it becomes a much more sophisticated billing process. And, and, and in that, you know, they're, they're, they're creating fraud. You know, some of it is, is just efficiency in billing, but some of it is, you know, if you're upcoding for services not provided or billing for services not provided or billing in locations where the services were not provided or you're billing for items that are not provided, you know, then guess what? You're committing fraud. Right, right. And systemic fraud, and that's the thing that's really, what's, what I find interesting is when you think about fraud, you know, we always talk about racketeering in the mafia and, and RICO, the RICO Act. You know, healthcare, you know, the amount of fraud that's being committed and the fact that it's systemic, I'm not an attorney, I'm just an average guy. You know, my initial reaction reading everything I've read about RICO is these healthcare providers are really opening up the door for them to be arrested on RICO counts. Hmm. And, and, and not only are they committing billing fraud, they're also committing mail fraud. Because when you send in fraudulent bills into the mail, guess what? It, you know, that, <laughs> no, that's a federal offense. Right, right. It, it's I, an interesting dynamic. I, I think about the movie, uh, uh, I forget the name of the movie, The Firm. Yes. The way they, you know, it, it's, a, it's a movie, but the way that, you know, law firm was found guilty was not because of the crimes that you would think they committed. They were found guilty for mail fraud, for fraudulent billing through the mail. And, and I, you know, it's never crossed my mind, Michael, too, that, that this could be a RICO case. Uh, you, you know, I, it's interesting that you that you sort of view it in that perspective, because you usually don't see them tried in that manner. You're, you're right, but, you know, it, number one, you're kind of dealing with a victim, you know, a defenseless victim. Right. Because, you know, the victim has no ability to kind of defend themselves from billing fraud. And it's systemic. So when you think about it's not like it's a one, one isolated incident. You know, it's, it's systemic. Hmm. So because the billing companies got their algorithms built and they have their approaches or even the larger, you know, I'll, I'll use my situation where I got billed for 11 implantable devices. <laughs> the surgeon told me that this is a problem with all his patients complaining about that same bill. But he didn't know why. So to me, it's like the billing companies, you know, not all billing companies, but a large number of billing companies have, are, are clearly committing fraud, and and the executives are completely aware of it. And so let's take a little bit of a dive. Let's shift gears a little bit um, more into where we're starting to see these cases impact long-term care. Um, you know, rehab seems to be the, the largest area of fraud that our audience base is sort of identified or at least has, has experience with. Does that kind of echo what you've seen in the past, and, and, and what makes this area such a target? Well, it's a good point. One of the more common areas is definitely rehabilitation, you know, because someone who's being billed, you know, gets approved for 20 visits and only does 10, and somehow 20 get billed. Right. Clearly that's 
that's very, you know, block and tackle, this is fraud. The service was not provided. And, and the hard part is, you know, when you're a senior, you get all these bills and you don't even know how to read them. And, you know, at the end of the day, if you don't have to pay for anything, why do you care? So clearly that's one of those situations where rehabilitation is a problem. <clears throat> office visits, any kind of office visits are a problem. You know, think about the average senior. They, they go for a regular office visit. So they're in there for an office visit for four minutes with a geriatric provider, and it gets billed for 10. Or they go visit a cardiologist, and they're going for a stress test, which is common for a senior. Sure. get a, a stress test covered on Medicare. Not only an office visit shows up, it never showed up in the past. So not only was there a stress test, but then but only there was an office visit. And guess what? A lot of those times, the physician might not even even been in the office that day. <laughs> It just showed up, or the physician, you know, greeted them at the beginning of the test and said, well, this person is going to take good care of you. They just say hello, ask you how your grandkids are doing, and the next thing you know, you have your stress test, everything is great, and suddenly a $250 office visit is layered on top of, of that, when all it was was a, a meet and greet and nothing more than that. that. That is an area of fraud, you know. Durable medical equipment around rehabilitation. How many commercials have we seen in our life about, you know, you can get your free electric scooter and Medicare will pay for it. So people are getting all these, like, you know, mobile, you know, wheelchairs and, you know, and I think it's great that they're able to have access to it. It's nothing against, you know, a senior having access to it, but, sure. but there was recent, you know, convictions, you know, of a company that was very common in, in, you know, in advertising for mobile, you know, electric wheelchairs. So, and, and these people were getting these wheelchairs and they didn't need them. Or, you know, something that's also common is they get the wheelchair and then they give it to somebody else. And, and I the think... The insurance company paid for it. Right, right. And I think I think a lot of this, some of this has to do, Michael, though, with with, with CPT codes, right? Because in, in long term care, we've seen some notable changes to CPT codes just in just in the past year, a couple of years. You know, w which codes uh, and services are there? Any codes specifically where where Medicare can be masked? Uh, this Medicare fraud can be masked. Well, when you're dealing with a five-digit CPT code and a member doesn't even reimburse the claims because they get full coverage from Medicare and Medicare Supplement, yeah. they're not going to understand what that CPT code is. So a regular geriatric office visit that's got a 99212 office visit and it gets billed at a 99214, you know, the insurance company is not in the room or Medicare, the federal government, is not sitting in the room with the patient and the doctor. So they don't actually have an hourglass or a stopwatch that says, yep, it's a four-minute visit versus a 15-minute visit. So that's clearly one area of abuse. You know, the other area of abuse is some of the changes in what I would call billing patterns. You know, ENT, ears, nose, throat visits are very common visits. Um, once you get to become, you know, a geriatric patient, chances are you've gone to an ENT visit, and in doing that, they do like what they refer to as an endoscopy. They take a rubber hose, a very tiny little rubber tube that they put in your nose and it's got a camera at the end of it. Right. That used to be a diagnostic procedure. That procedure used to be billed as one CPT code 
for $75 to $125. That now is billed as three different procedures. It's billed as when an office visit procedure. Number two, it's billed as sinus surgery and throat surgery. And people would say, how is that surgery? It's a one-minute procedure, and it's, just, it's not much different than taking a tongue depressor and sticking it in your mouth. Why are they billing it as two surgical procedures? Well, you know, the, the AMA or some of the other organizations that, that kind of governing billing practices have unbundled one diagnostic procedure for two surgical procedures, and they call it two surgeries because one surgery is in your sinuses and one's in your throat. Though there's no anesthesia, there's no cutting, there's no bleeding. It's a one-minute, you know, I refer to it as like a tongue depressor for your nose, and the goal of that exercise is to check for polyps. And what's funny about polyps, polyps come and go. So someone may record, hey, this individual had a polyp. Let's monitor it. So that way it kind of encourages it to come back next time, and then the polyp disappears, and then it reappears, and it disappears. And some of that really does happen, and some of that's truly fraud. Huh. That seventy-five to one hundred dollar, twenty-five dollar procedure is now anywhere between eight hundred to fifteen hundred for a one-minute procedure. To me, that's fraud. Some people will say that's changing billing practice, but to me, that's fraud. It, it, and and thinking about that, Michael, too, there's two big takeaways I'm I'm taking away from what from what you're telling me. Number one, the, the, this concept of EDI certified that's not a gold standard. That's not gospel. Is that what you're telling me? Well, it, it's, it, you know, at the end of the day, people want to have their claims paid quickly. The doctors want to get paid quickly. The member wants to make sure their reimbursements to their doctors get paid quickly. They just, they want the transaction to happen quickly. They don't want the insurance companies to sit on it. Right. But we've gone from one extreme to another, you know, and part of it is, you know, part of it is driven by the fact that people want to use technology to do everything. Right. And sometimes you can't, you know, do everything with technology and then the other part of it is kind of it's almost like a you know when you think back in the 80s and the 90s insurance companies and HMOs hired claims people and, and the, the objective was you spend some you spend a dollar of admin to save four to three to four dollars in claims so every dollar you spend in admin saves you three to four dollars because you're looking at claims but now with like Obamacare and some of the others when a, when a health plan has a loss ratio of an 85 or a 90 percent claims to revenue loss ratio, that means they have 10 to 15% for all admin, profit, and overhead. So how do you cut that expense in order to stay within your loss ratio targets? You cut certain operational people, including claims people. So those individuals that were watching the store are no longer there. So when you spend a dollar to save four, now you're not spending a dollar and it's costing you four. Before we bring you the conclusion of our conversation with Michael Frank, we wanted to bring you a quick word from our podcast supporter, the iAdvanced Senior Care Educational Webinar Series. Join us on December 19th at 1 p.m. Eastern for a 2018 CMS policy preview with Washington, D.C. lobbyist and nationally recognized policy expert in long-term care, Cynthia Morton. Hear Cynthia speak about uh, the 2018 CMS policy mandates and prospective legislation, related to skilled nursing and assisted living operations, 
Uh, you hear her describe the repeal of the long-standing Part B outpatient therapy cap and the replace, uh, replacement medical review of claims program. Uh, she'll give a breakdown of quality measures mandated by the Impact Act. Uh, you'll hear more about important issues in the near-term future, including Part A reimbursement changes uh, to CMS services, uh, as well as see her model the new resident classification system or RCS1 model and how that could impact reimbursement going into 2018. It's a lot, a lot that's going to be covered there. Uh, I ask subscribers can enjoy a complimentary registration for this program and can do so by visiting iAdvanceSeniorCare.com and by clicking the webinars link. Again, that's iAdvanceSeniorCare.com and click the webinars link. And now back to our Medicare fraud discussion with Michael Frank. Hey, when we start talking about some of some of the policy changes that appear to be uh, being discussed on Capitol Hill, Michael, we're talking about cuts, large-scale cuts to Medicare and Medicaid. But from what you're telling me, though, if we were just to even focus and get the right policies in place around fraud, we wouldn't have to make those cuts. It wouldn't even be an issue. Is that accurate? I would strongly support that. I, I, I believe healthcare billing fraud is the number one driver of our cost increase. Yeah. And it's not in Medi- just Medicare and Medicaid, though it's it's more systemic and more visible there because the members are being reimbursed in full by the insurance company or Medicare or Medicaid, depending on the plan they're in. So there's no checks and balances. So they need to have health care fraud needs to be number one. It, it can't be like item six, item ten. But then here's the interesting part about it. You know, our economy's GNP is like 17% healthcare. Mm-hmm. All the people that support the healthcare system, they have to be very careful how you shock our healthcare system. But the other thing to kind of keep in mind, you look at presidents past, Democrats and Republicans. Prior to this president, none of the presidents, you know, really focused on healthcare billing fraud. And, you know, a factor to that is the fact that many of those presidential candidates got money from the AMA, the AHA, mm-hmm. Big Pharma. You know, if 17% of our economy is health care, well, that 17% of the economy is is a big donor to presidential campaigns, Democrat or Republican. Mm-hmm. What I'm excited about this president, but it's, you know, it's to be determined, is he kind of funded his own campaign. So he didn't take money from Big Pharma. Mm-hmm. or from the major healthcare care organizations. So he has the ability to change the law, make a difference, and not have those personal interests get in his way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So the bill that's out there right now isn't going to cut it. it it's going gonna, it's gonna to definitely make a difference. Because, look, you're, you're, when you're cutting costs, you're cutting costs. And what's going to happen is, you know, you will have a backlash. But, you know, really the most critical area they got to focus on is what's happening at the billing level. Right, right. And there's, things, and there's things they can do. You know, CMS, the federal government, gave out grants for people to, you know, back in like 2014, 2015, 2013, so organizations can get grant money to come up with business plans on how to approve outcomes in health care. You want to know what? They should take that same grant money and put it into fraud prevention, and I think they would materially impact, you know, the lever of costs. 
I would bet you would cut it in half, a minimum a third. And actually, that's a great segue too, Michael. You know, there's a new CMS mandate out there that long-term care organizations are now required to have compliance officers to check billing accuracy and oversee a lot of these processes that you mentioned were somewhat automated by some of these billing companies. Do you think that type of a step makes a difference? No, not at all. Because here's kind of the reality. They're hiring someone. Yeah, their documentation is going to be better. They'll be more prepared to deal with if they get caught committing fraud. But, you know, at the end of the day, if you're billing for services you should not be billing for and at levels you should not be billing for and for the number of units, you know, pretty much everything we've talked about on this call, nothing's going to change. And assigning someone to be a watchdog in that area, not going to change. They have to go much more than that. And you want to know what, you know, there's the carrot and the stick. I think the stick needs to be you commit fraud, you go to jail. And the moment they start auditing for fraud and they catch fraud and they start sending these CEOs, you know, not individual doctors that are coming up with phantom billing offices to look bigger, but when you start to go to major hospitals that are committing consistent, regular, systemic fraud, you've got to call them out on that. And right now there's, you know, how do you catch them? You know, the reports that the insurance companies provide, you know, those ELBs do not provide great detail. They provide some detail, but I'm an actuary with 30 years' experience. It took me a year to figure out I was billed for 11 implantable devices. Could you imagine someone who's not in the insurance industry? Could you imagine your parents, your grandparents, or your kids, or the average blue-collar guy or the average white-collar guy that doesn't do anything in insurance? You know, you have to create laws around transparency and laws around fraudulent billing, and it can't be, you know, gentle kick gloves. It's got to be extremely excessive and aggressive, and, you know, the attorney generals and the insurance departments need to, you know, spend time and money focused on that area. And, you know, the first people I think of, Michael, are executive audience members, are executives and administrators in skilled nursing, assisted living, rehab, all those different areas. Those are the folks I think about first. When we're thinking about that audience base, what steps would you recommend to those executives and administrators to protect their own liability of their organizations and to protect against a visit from the OIG potentially? Well, you know, at the end of the day, the bigger the organization, the more likely there's fraud being committed. It's just we have nice little names for it. We call it upcoding. We call it unbundling. You know, we call it optimization. We call it, you know, aggressive billing. Call it whatever you want. Fraud is fraud. So you're either believing you're committing a fraud and you're going to try to stop it or you're just going to continue business as usual. You know, the hard part when you're dealing with smaller agencies is they feel they're not going to get caught. When you deal with larger agencies, they feel like they're too big to get caught. And, you know, at the end of the day, it's all going to come down to culturally do the organizations feel that they should be billing for stuff that they shouldn't be billing for. You know, and that's really it at the end of the day. And if 
if, and sometimes a provider doesn't know their billing company is doing stuff. Because I've had physician groups that we've consulted come back to me and say, you know, I had no idea, you know, I got a letter from an insurance company that said they had a high intensity billing codes. And I went back and saw that my billing company was changing, you know, my records. Well, that billing company should be fired, you know, as opposed to, oh, it's just a slap on the hand or a very common statement of a billing company. Oh, it's industry practice. It's standard practice. It's, you know, I use my, my fraudulent claim that I've had to manage uh, where I was billed for 11 devices and the, the chief medical officer and the chief compliance officer notified me that they audited the bills and, and the bills are correct and they're consistent with market billing. You know, clearly the bills are not correct. They were fraudulent. And, but the, they, they all have a can response that it's industry practice, it's standard practice, that's a real problem. And I, th I think that's interesting. Um, you know, and I appreciate this conversation here today. You know, it, when when I think about what what you just mentioned there, is there anything that those organizations can do? You mentioned culture. It, it's a big systemic problem and a cultural problem. When 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 I'm a I'm an owner of a long term care facility, is there anything that I can do to hold those billing companies accountable, short of firing them or perhaps? you know, installing a member of my team to kind of oversee that process. Do you recommend anything when you're out there consulting in the field, Michael? Well, you know, when you think about the different things you can do, you said some of them. Number one, you have to audit the billing company. You know, and you might, if you have a large group of doctors, tell them to pick each doctor to take a look at the records you put in and see what the billing company did. If the billing company is changing what you're billing, you know, that's firing for cause. It's not a, you know, there, there also has to be a, a very big upfront discussion and maybe even a contractual discussion that, you know, contracts can be termed for cause, you know, and you may be subject to criminal acts and investigations. And, you know, if I'm a billing company and, and the provider group that, that's contracted me is telling me that if, if I'm, a, you know, convicted of a crime that they're going to have to hold me harmless, the billing company, the billing company may not want to accept that. But, you know, at the end of the day, you have to audit. You have to have it come from the top of the organization. And if it doesn't come from the top of the organization to the billing company, but there has to be a certain level of agreement on being ethical. And this is the thing that's so messed up about it is we're trying to come up with procedures on how we can make people ethical. <laughs> you, know, you know, organizations have chief ethical officers and they have people that teach ethics. Every major teaching hospital has committees that deal with this, you know, but they, they deal with ethics around care, not ethics around billing. They all kind of like, oh, that's, that's the 800-pound gorilla. That's uh, a... <laughs> They gotta go after that. If they don't go after that, then what? You know. Yeah, I think, and and I think that's a that's a great spot to uh, uh, to kind of uh, venture off here. I, I, my last question for you, Michael. Tell us a little bit about Aquarius Capital. Where are you speaking these days? How are you involved in the community? Oh, uh, sure. Um, our firm is an actuarial consulting firm. We're a 15 year old firm, consulting large insurers, HMOs, large municipalities, managed care companies, and insurance regulators. We speak at a variety of different conferences. 
um, spending more and more time doing what I call advocacy work outside of, you know, just the consulting business, mm -hmm. you know, what I would call unpaid advocacy work. You know, through my career, I've always been kind of like a go-to person for individuals, family and friends, and local community people about, you know, they have a claim issue and they don't know how to get it resolved. But now that I've, I've gone over from being a professional to actually being one of them in my own situation, I've, I've now taken a more active role on, on being an advocate, and I'm doing more and more volunteering and joining more boards of directors that are focused in on, on the advocacy side of the business because there's too many organizations out there right now that advocacy is not there to help them. Right, right. Well, this has been a fantastic conversation. I really, I really appreciate your time. Um, I, don't go too hard on those uh, kids in your actuary class, uh, Columbia, all right? Uh, thank you. Actually, it's kind of fun those students because I've actually in the classroom it taught them about fraud but I didn't necessarily make it like this mystical thing that you know with a boogeyman or anything <laughs> like that I just gave them my medical bills and I showed them how a hospital can bill for 11 implantable devices or how a lab bill for a routine blood exam could be billed at two to three thousand dollars on an EOB and then the insurance company says okay lab company I'm going to pay you 50 bucks and a lab company says, thank you. You know, so I've been showing probably about a dozen examples of real fraud just that I'm a victim of, and it really is an eye-opening thing for a lot of these students, and, and my hope is, you know, as these students, you know, we've had over 700 kids go through our classroom, or graduate students, I'm just hoping that these kind of advocacy issues get out there, and, and people will try to make more of a difference. I love it. Thank you so much for your time, Michael Frank. I appreciate it. A big thank you to Michael Frank of Aquarius Capital for that outstanding discussion covering Medicare fraud, which, again, given the current state of HHS and CMS and long-term care and the congressional push to uncover waste within the system, this, this topic could not have been more relevant. You can follow more of Michael's work at AquariusCapital.com, as well as his classes through Columbia University, if you are so inclined. Also, we'd like to extend our thanks to our podcast supporter, the iAdvance I Senior Care Educational Webinar Series. Again, please be sure to join us on December 19th at 1 p.m. Eastern to hear from Cynthia Morton about our 2018 CMS preview, and that's sponsored by OmniCare. Don't miss this program as we'll be covering everything you need to know about policy in 2018, including the Part B therapy caps repeal, in addition to the Impact Act and a host of other big changes, a lot coming down the pipe from Washington, uh, so you want to be there. Again, registration is complimentary for IASC subscribers, and you can, you can register by visiting iAdvanceSeniorCare.com and by clicking the webinars link. Again, that's iAdvanceSeniorCare.com and click the webinars link. We appreciate you stopping by to listen, and we'll see you, see you again next time.